Thanks, Darcy. And uh, if you keep your Bibles open there, we'll uh, work in that text. Well, it may be hard to imagine now, having just seen Darcy do the Bible reading, but it wasn't that long ago that he would sleep in a baby cot. It was one of those timber cots with the high wooden bars that meant there was no way he could climb out of that cot in his onesie. When Darcy had slept and was ready to get up, um, typically I would study language in Mongolia in the morning and Ashley would study in the afternoon. So in Darcy's afternoon nap, when he'd wake up, he knew he couldn't climb out of the bars. He knew all he had to do to be lifted out was to say, up, Daddy, up. And so that was the formula that worked for him and for us. Up, Daddy, up, and I'd come and happily lift him out. Last week we were left with the grim but vital diagnosis that as a species, humanity is in deep trouble, deeply loved by a holy and pure God, but legally culpable and finding ourselves on the wrong side of his justice, surrounded by the unscalable dark bars of our own sin and of the sins of those around us, generational sin. In the weeks before that, the distressing implications of this were also spelled out. Unless a human born into sin somehow escapes this situation, God's righteous judgment means God typically hands us over to reap what we sow. We saw that in chapter 1, 18 to 24, that he refrains from saving us from ourselves and the sin of others. That's a terrible form of judgment. But worse... There can be worse. There is worse. He warns of a day of wrath in chapter 2, verse 5, when each person will be found guilty forever before him as we approach unending and worsening regret on the other side of the grave. Human bodies die, but the problem is that human souls live forever. It's the most disturbing truth Christians have. This knowledge is part of the truth Christians bear, the cross that we bear. Three weeks ago, we saw the image of a skull with a nail in it, which is a a trivial problem by comparison. When we reject King Jesus, all hell breaks loose and we find ourselves in a royal mess. Two weeks ago, we saw how futile it is to hope everything's going to be okay on that day before God on the basis of what we've done or what we know or even what we don't know. And last week, the eerie phrase, not even one should still be ringing in our ears. The call not to try harder, but to surrender and admit it, to fess up, to own our sin before God. Stuck in the bottom of a slippery, filthy pit. We're a species born with eternity in our hearts, unlike all the other creatures. We sense there must be more to life than the dregs of experience that so many face. And we might wonder, is the hope of rescue of ultimate relief and happiness, only a fanciful dream? Or is there some form of up, daddy, up that we can use in life? Well, the news I'm very excited to make very clear, I hope today, is that there is a rescue, there is a rescuer, and there is a way for everything to be made right with God and the world. There is an up, daddy, up. Today's message is deeply important. Some have even said that this paragraph is the most important paragraph ever written. I assure you, it is the best news you will ever hear, whether you realise it today or not. So to keep it very simple, we just have a two-point message. 
and I won't discuss much from verses 27 to 31. Firstly, what is the good news, verses 21 to 22? And second, how does it work, verses 23 to 26? First then, what is the good news? In a nutshell, the good news is that our righteous God gifts us righteousness. We call out for righteousness we don't have, and God reaches down and simply gifts it to us. He lifts us up to his kind and glorious self. Let's take a closer look, beginning with a summary of the problem in verse 20. Therefore, as last week we read, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin, the bars, the mire, the problem, the unscalable wall. But, verse 21, but now, but now, but now, but now, a great start to this sentence. There was an AD and a BC that led to an AD for the world, for everyone in it. Someone has changed everything, but now what? But now, apart from the law, the law that exposes our sin, the righteousness of God has been made known. That is, our righteousness, our righteous God makes known, he reveals, he unveils, he makes manifest a whole other source of righteousness. Our Holy Father offers what he has done and who he is to us. Up, Daddy, up, we call, and someone with greater strength lifts us. The law and prophets of ancient Israel hinted that God could somehow treat us righteous. Psalms like Psalm 32, blessed is the person whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are covered. They spoke excitedly but vaguely about it. How can a person's sin be taken away? Our righteousness before God is never achieved. God says there are no good people. Never achieved, but simply received. See verse 22? This righteousness is given, not earned, given, through faith in Jesus Christ. To whom? To all who simply believe. Friends, this information turns the knowledge of, or the teachings of world religions on their head. Salvation is not all about trying. It's all about simply receiving. So how do humans of all races then push the receive button to to have it? How do we ask the one true God to lift us out? And that's where faith becomes critically important. It's used twice there in one sentence of verse 22. Faith, trust, and believe are all English words translating the one word Paul uses. And so we could translate verse 22 to say... The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who put their faith in him. Like the woman who reached out to touch Jesus' robes to be healed, so faith joins us everyday surrendered people with the extraordinary power of God. Faith enables us to have the blessedness that God wants to offer, the safe harbour of God's own righteousness. When Jesus says, your faith has healed you, It's not that the faith is powerful in itself, but that God gives to those who express their faith in him, their trust, their reliance, their dependence, their confidence in what he can do. Now, faith will look different for all our different circumstances. Uh, Each of our lives differ from day to day. It's going to look different again in a Russian prison where you've, you've been imprisoned for your faith. It looks 
one thing in living in our apartment and at Ride. It's another thing in, in our high school where a lot of our friends might not be Christians. Our workmates. The life of faith looks different, but critically, the faith is not just being a believing, hopeful person. Sometimes you see up on the wall, just believe or have faith. To have faith here must be, verse 22, faith in Jesus Christ. Faith, trust, belief, a reliance upon Jesus for who he is, the Messiah, God's anointed one, to be our saving Lord. We say, up, daddy, up. Save, God, save. By saying, Lord Jesus, I call upon you as God's way of saving me. Lord Jesus, be my saviour. I call upon you in trust for you to do that. Now, at this point, I don't know if we have police or ex-police or ex-judges among us, but the policemen and the judges might be getting a little bit nervous. They might not like reduced sentences when they've done the hard work of policing to get someone behind bars. A reduced sentence, let alone a full pardon. They might despise cheap forgiveness if it runs counter to true justice. So hold on a minute, how does this work? How then can a righteous, not a corrupt God, but a righteous God make sinners righteous without compromising his righteousness, his justice? Now, if Paul were here, he'd be very glad you asked because that's what he answers next. And point two, how does it work? Verses 23 to 26. Listen to Paul explain, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that holiness, the otherness, the purity that we can't reach. And verse 24, all are justified. That is declared to be righteous. Not just innocent or pardoned, wonderful though that would be and is, but even better than sinless, he declares us positively righteous. When the father says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, that now transfers to us. The pleasure he has in the son is now transferred to his sons and daughters. It's not because we reform ourselves at church. It's not because we become good little Christian boys and girls. The first chapters of Romans weren't wasted on us. We've surrendered from that works-based thinking. No, we're declared righteous, verse 24, freely by his grace, God's undeserved kindness, God's tender mercy, whether it's to the infant or to sinners just like you and me, sinners who simply call on him for the rescue he wants to give us as a loving God. Central to Christianity is the Reformers' great chant as they rediscovered this wonderful gospel, that Christians are saved by grace through faith. Very simple, but very powerful and important. We're saved by grace through faith. Up, Daddy, up. Now, I imagine if I'd be a bit offended if I'd be thinking something was wrong if I bought one of my kids an expensive Christmas gift and they say in response, oh, thanks, Dad, for my Christmas present. Now, how much was it? How much do I owe you for that? I think, what's wrong? I love you. It's a gift. Your role is simply to receive it because I love you and you love me. What a huge shift in thinking that our righteousness comes to us just like that. What a change in our relationship we have with the almighty God. The righteous God of wrath has become to us the the righteous father of mercy. 
Well, how exactly does this work? As you might expect, just as any trade or profession has its own lingo, its own technical words, because distinctions and precision and differences matter, so we should expect the same in theology. The same as something so big as being saved by God should have meaningful language. You don't say to a carpenter, can you pass the hammer if what you mean is a mallet? They'll pass you the hammer, not the mallet. Or you don't walk into Bunnings and say, I'm looking for a thingamajig. Um, it's one of those... It's one of those, you know, those thingos. Massive warehouse, what do you want? Detail, precision. Well, part of God's awesome plan was through Israel's history to create the lingo, the categories, the concepts, the rituals to help us understand something very important. What God would do and now has done for his people. What has God done for his people? We've already explained that justified means God declares us to be in the right with him declared us innocent, it's, it's a legal word, but we still haven't satisfied the policeman or the judge among us. They want justice. You can't just pardon if you're righteous. So necessary then are the two other words in here in verses 24 and 25. Redemption, one of them, and propitiation, the second. Or as I, our NIV puts it, a sacrifice of atonement, which makes more sense to us as English speakers. Well, first, redemption, what does that mean? For someone in the business or the trade of knowing how God saves his people through history, redemption is already a beautiful word. God so famously redeemed Israel out of Egypt and redeemed them again out of exile. It's to purchase back. It's to buy slaves their freedom. God owns every human. And so when he says to Pharaoh, let my people go, I'm redeeming them. I'm, I'm taking them. I'm redeeming what is mine. What then was the price? The purchase price for us is explained in verse 24. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So if you imagine now, through your mind's eye, you see Jesus on the cross of Calvary on that day. What you are seeing in your mind's eye is God making the transaction for you. The penalty for your sin. Your redemption from sin and all of its consequences forever was not being overlooked by a corrupt or a soft judge. It was being righteously purchased by the righteous judge to show his righteousness. As verse 25 says, in this way the justifier shows himself just. The, the one who makes righteous shows the righteousness of himself. That God the righteous son given to redeem us so that we can become the righteous children of God. That's how it works. Your redemption price Jesus thoroughly, kindly, graciously, wonderfully paid. The second specialist term is propitiation or sacrifice of atonement. These concepts are related with redemption. But what does it mean, verse 25, that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith? There's that word faith again, so critical. Propitiation is a word that looks back to the sacrificial system. Through God's years with ancient Israel, he taught them that the wages of sin is death and that because he is holy, his righteous anger can either be poured out towards the person who had sinned or symbolically towards a substitute, unblemished animal offered as a sacrifice. God's anger would then be symbolically upon the animal and a person would show they trusted God, they had faith in God who told them to do this 
by going through the atonement, the peacemaking ritual. In verses 25 to 26, Paul shows that ancient Israel's faith to trust in God through these rituals was only effective because Christ, verse 26, would centuries later become the true sacrifice of atonement for all nations of all time. And so Jesus' sacrifice not only works in the present and for the future, but also works backwards to those who trust in God in saying up, daddy, up, in receiving the salvation he offers in the terms he offers it. In the Old Testament, through the law, in the New Testament, becomes clearer through the gospel. Gospel in both Testaments. Just as redemption points to Jesus' death, paying for our release, propitiation, sacrifice of atonement, is about God's wrath being poured out on his Son, who willingly takes our sentence upon himself. Now, this was and is scandalous. It's not fair, if that's what you're thinking. It's better than fair. It's merciful and kind. It was and is unthinkable, incredible, and wonderful all at once. The triune God, in this way, takes the world's sin that he made upon himself. The lamb has to be unblemished, which explains the four Gospels' accounts of Jesus' righteous life. Not just because he would be a moral example for us to be better little boys and girls, but because he was the sacrifice being prepared God takes the field, he enters the mud for us, but no mud sticks to him as we see through his resurrection. The father redeems redeems us at the cost of his son and the son propitiates the father by bearing his wrath. As the song puts it, behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I studied ancient history at university and I noticed there and in world religions too, philosophers through the ages have reasoned rightly that if there was a God responsible for this world, which certainly contains so many strands of goodness, then we might expect the goodness of the world is a reflection of the goodness of its source. And they were onto something but hadn't scratched the surface of how good and kind God is that you can pick up from general revelation. The world is seriously marred, wounded, in many places reeling from the consequences of idolatry and sin. But now, into the darkness, God's righteousness is revealed, manifest, displayed, unveiled, delivered by churches, sharing his word through conversations, through SRE, through home groups, through Jesus films, through Christianity Explored courses, through social media, through tracts. The church's mandate is to get the word out, readying for growth, ready to grow, strengthening and and seeking that God would add to our number daily those being saved. What good news for the world we have. God is the father our friends may never have had. He provides the mother's care they may have missed. He's the lonely man's greatest friend. He provides intimacy no spouse can match. The security anxious hearts always sought. He's the permanence your soul longs for. He's the arrival you never dreamed could actually be a a happily ever after. In Jesus, God is today looking you in the eye 
with a knowing smile and an outstretched hand pierced for the very purpose of offering it to you. Isn't that amazing news? Fresh now as it was when Paul announced it to the world then. Jesus' work is for people from all nations, verse 30, but it doesn't mean that it was any less for you personally. None of us deserves justification, redemption, propitiation, but I assure you God wants you to receive it. It was for you. It is for you. And it doesn't do God any favours by rejecting it. New life with God can begin or begin afresh today. And you may have been in church for a long time. Yet a new chapter of appreciation of God's goodness and nearness can begin as you from today decide to pitch your tent a little bit closer to this cross. To live with the words of the song, my worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. Perhaps you've been a Christian living a suburb or two away from Calvary. Church is an occasional thing. Christian discipleship is something you give occasional thought about. And from today, the rest of your life might be the story of more gratefully living in the shadow of the cross. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That could be the most important sentence ever written. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Friends, I ask, are you sure that you've received his forgiveness, his rescue, his righteousness? If it is at all a temptation for you, don't keep going your own way. Don't keep hoping God, for some reason, won't hold you to account for doing that. We've seen God is already active in judgment now, allowing people to go their own way and reap what we sow. He's warned us about the coming day of his wrath too. Your day before the Lord could have been yesterday, but wasn't. It could be tomorrow. I urge you, don't play chicken with God, seeing how long you can hold out. Don't play Russian roulette with God, hoping there are more days in the chamber before you stand in his awesome, fearsome presence. Though in our world we have good reason to be sceptical, we have no good reason to be sceptical of God, who says to us so kindly, you're right with me if you trust in my son, Jesus. And we can take God at his word by flourishing as a church in this good news of grace. This news has inspired the world's greatest artists, musicians, scientists. Visit parts of Asia and Africa and you see this good news has inspired missionaries, doctors, nurses. Visit DPC on a Sunday and you see households on weekdays. And this news explaining their lives in ways that other explanations don't fit. Never trying to make it with God, but living with the knowledge of arrival, victory, gratitude. Children of God, citizens of heaven, living for a little while here on earth. Others of us might say, I've been to a church a long time. And I've seen this before, friends. I'd rejoice if this were you. I've had friends say, I'm a bit embarrassed to say I've somehow missed what Christianity was all about. What God is on about. 
why Earth exists and why I exist upon it. That the simple point of my life is not to get by or to be good enough for God, but simply to take God's hand forever when he offers it to me. To say, up, daddy, up, and then receive the help he gives me. God made us with longings, not so that he could withhold those from us as humans, but because God always planned to meet our longings with himself. Our longings give us a taste of the glory that's to come, verse 23, the honour, the truth, the beauty, the goodness of Eden and of the new creation awaiting us. Our world seeks in vain to get from the world satisfaction from the little tastes around us instead of looking to God who has so much in store for those whose hand he's already holding. No wonder Paul was so eager to preach the gospel in Rome and from Rome to Spain and the ends of the earth. This news is better than we know. It's far better than I can express. We need never be a defensive fortress church, but see ourselves as lights of heaven, messengers of hope. We hold out what everybody is ultimately longing for, looking for in all the wrong places yet finding every wrong place dissatisfying and ultimately soul-destroying. God alone meets the human heart. And our good news is we can introduce people to the God who will do that for them. Just say, up, daddy, up. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. If you'd like to put your faith in Jesus today, I'd like to give you the opportunity to do that. For others, it may be to renew this conviction. You may feel you've lapsed. You may feel you've been cold towards God. You may feel you've prioritised other activities for yourself or your children. And so I invite you to pray with me the following prayer that we can all say together. It's printed in the Two Ways to Live tract that I hope all of you have. Let's say together, Dear God, I know that I am not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I am sorry, and I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me so that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me so that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. If you've used this as a commitment or a recommitment, why not tell somebody about that? That would be a great encouragement. I'd love to hear of that myself if you'd like to do that.